Welcome to the Western Bow podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted by the first of each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, My Body is a Temple, Creating a Life of Practice, and was given by Christina Sell via Zoom on August 8, 2020. Christina has taught yoga for over 20 years and is the author of three books on yoga and body image, Yoga from the Inside Out, My Body is a Temple, and a deeper yoga. Christina Sell. All right. My name is Christina Sell. I'm happy to be here with all of you and, and happy to have the opportunity to talk. The 12-step communities have this wonderful expression that they say, they say, take what you can use and leave the rest. And it reminds me of what my spiritual teacher always said about being useful. When his guru would ask him to speak in in India, he said, I would want to say something useful. And so I considered what it is to say something useful, what it is to make use of things over the years, not as a constant consideration, but as a consideration in my life as a student and in my life as a teacher. When I think about that 12-step teaching that says, take what you can use and leave the rest, it doesn't say take what you like and leave the rest. It doesn't say take what you agree with and leave the rest. It doesn't say... Um, take everything at face value and leave the rest. It's just to stick what you can use. And in my consideration of that, I have thought that sometimes it's useful when I disagree. And if in the process of disagreement, I churn a little bit and I work through my own thoughts and I arrive at a conclusion 180 degrees different than what the speaker's presentation uh, was, then it would have been useful to me not through the agreement and not through the fact that I liked it, but through the disagreement and the kind of grist for the mill that disagreement can provide. So I invite you to take what you can use (laughs) and leave the rest and to open up within yourself any consideration around what it is to make use of what's offered. I have in my notes to say that I've written three books, Yoga from the Inside Out, My Body is a Temple, and um, A Deeper Yoga. In some ways, I've written the same book three times because the same subject of what it is to be in a body and what it is to be a human in a body on planet Earth has been an ongoing consideration of mine. And really for something that sounds so basic and simple, what it is to be a human being in a body on planet Earth, as practical and grounded and sort of uh, normal as that might sound, that has required tremendous spiritual inquiry and practice for me. To simply be in a body didn't come at the physical level very easily for me. So these books were all inspired by uh, journeys through bulimia and exercise addiction and painful acting out behaviors of all kinds. And that's the big backstory behind why the topic has such interest for me. And I have written in some ways the same book and in some ways very different books. 
The body is a temple. At the time that I wrote it, the sort of more overt, timely inspiration had two basic streams when I wrote it. This book came out in 2009. And at that time, I was practicing and teaching a method of yoga called Anusara Yoga. It was developed by a former Iyengar yoga teacher named John Friend. Anusara is a Sanskrit word, and anu means concurrent or to be with, and sada means to flow. And the word uh, was pulled from a line in a text called the Kularnava Tantra. And this text has a line in it that says, Shaktipata Anusarena Shishyo Anugraha Arti. That's a big mouthful of Sanskrit. Shaktipata is, um, pata means to fall. Shakti is power. And so it would be a descent of power. Power, grace, descends, it falls. This is Shaktipatu Anasarena Shisho. A shisho is a seeker or a disciple or a student. So when the student, Anusara, becomes concurrent with, joins a larger flow, steps into a larger um, current. So it could be translated as current, flow, force. When the seeker, shishyo, anugraha, steps into a greater flow, grace descends. Anugraha is uh, the root word of anu, anu is in this case, um, like an individual. And graha means to grab. And so it implies that grace grabs hold of you when you step into its flow. And it's a teaching that says when we bring our effort to a greater flow, the effort comes back and joins us in that and makes us able. It grabs hold of us. So I am pretty comfortable, I'm assuming many of you, since you've chosen to be in a spiritual talk series on Saturday night, that you're fairly comfortable with talking about things like grace. I also present these comments to very, very broad uh, audiences. So I do want to say that it's not... um, It's not actually only a metaphysical kind of teaching to understand that if we step into a larger flow, grace carries us or that flow will carry us. Because we could look at it in very practical terms. If you step into the flow of your anger, it will take you. And if you step into the flow of your jealousy, you know where that goes. And if we step into the flow of our self-criticism, there's no end to where it will take us. So it's a very practical teaching as well as a very um, sort of I think, a nugget teaching of how so much of the spiritual process works, that there's a current that we align with that is uh, responsive, that carries, that can carry us at the same time. Uh, It requires our effort. And so there's a kind of dual tension, maybe a creative tension between effort and grace and that's implied in that teaching. So that was a system of yoga that I was studying in, and asana was very um, informed by some work in the Iyengar Yoga School, and it also had this flavor of this shaktipata, anusarena, an inquiry into grace, informed by the Siddha Yoga lineage with uh, Guru Mai Chidvalasananda, and prior to her, uh, Swami Muktananda, and prior to him. Uh, his teacher, Nityananda, that's right. And there's a lot of teachings in that school that we're funneling into our work in the asana programs and the yoga postural studies, the philosophical schools that were informing that were very informed by the teachings of Kashmir Shaivism. 
And that's a, a stream of non-dual teachings coming out of Kashmir, India, uh, sort of late in the yoga tradition, coming into about ninth century, really flowering in the 11th and 12th centuries. So if yoga philosophy doesn't require all of this technology, you can just sort of let a uh, technical language, you can let that flow over you. 2,000 years back into the history and you get into the Vedas, you get around the common era, Patanjali yoga and classical yoga, and the systems continue to evolve and how they explained and experienced and practiced and their explanations for the nature of reality were evolving. That evolution in yogic thought saw the body as condensed spirit. So when you look into the yoga tradition, you will not find um, in the philosophical studies agreement about the nature of reality. The most point of agreement we get is that there's something more than just consensual, sensory, what you can see, taste, touch, and smell. Most of the systems I've studied, they agree on that, but there's more. But the nature of that more is a, is a, a, is a, moving, a bit of a moving stream and, and not everyone agrees. And that's, that's great. So we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. So I was doing asana and teacher training and practice and study in that, in that school. A long time, I met my guru, Lee Lazowick, and, and his uh, guru, Yogi Ramsarat Kumar, and the lineage of Swami Paparamdas. And so those were uh, very interesting, integrated schools within um, Lee's teachings. He considered himself a Western Baal and... His guru was in Tiruvannamalai, India, a great, wonderful saint, Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar. And so there's a lot of similarities between these philosophical premises, and then there's some differences. I don't think so much ultimate differences, but differences of explanation, differences of flavor. And where they have a point of agreement, something that Lee would say is that God does not live in the sky. And this uh, assertion of the body being the means through which we experience and directly encounter reality as it is. And in both schools, the assertion that life unfolding as it is, is the ground through which we find out what's deeper than the surface and to see the very nature of reality here and now. And there's very sophisticated, uh, nuanced explanations way outside the scope of this talk. But there is a resonance in these two uh, traditions and the different uh, viewpoints. It was very helpful to me. And so this book was really inspired by a visit when Lee would take us as uh, groups of students with him to see his, um, to go to Yogyam Kumar's ashram. And part of the oral tradition, as well as the written tradition in the spiritual community, was talking about Yogi Ramsar Kumar's temple and the process of it being built. There's resources to learn way more about Yogi Ramsar Kumar than I have time to talk about tonight. But the project of building his temple was a project of um, creating a mandir or a, a lasting place that would transmit blessings. And this is part of, I'd heard stories about it. I'd read about the temple being constructed. I'd been told it would be awesome. And so I went on this trip where we went to India, a whole bunch of us. And I was sat in the temple with Yogi Ram Kumar's temple, among other things, highly jet lagged, kind of weirded out on highly sugared uh, Indian coffee, hot in a sari because we would wear saris. And so I had an ongoing story in my mind that 
somehow this patriarchal nine yards of fabric around me and the sweltering India heat cannot be for my well-being. <laughs> you know, that might, I had that story going most of the time that I was wrapped in nine yards of fabric in the southern India heat <laughs> and hiking up mountains with a group of people. But at any rate, I sat in the temple hard marble floor, very uncomfortable. All of the creature comforts were uh, up for grabs at that point, And I felt supremely happy. In the presence of my ongoing complaints, in the presence of what it is to travel with a group, any of you who've ever been on a tour of any kind with a group of people um, know that proximity is both wonderful and challenging. And um, there's always someone, and sometimes you're that someone that's driving someone else crazy. So there was that. And, and despite all of the stories of anyone who's, uh, you could fill in the blanks for yourself based on your own experience, I felt supremely happy. I would say almost unbridled joy. And I don't know. I think, I don't know what I thought it was about at the time. I think I was swept up in the, the mood of it. And, and um, But as we spent the first period of this two or so week trip in in Truvanamalaya, Yogram Kumar Ashram. And then we did some touring around. We gave uh, some talks and we did some other sightseeing. We go to these other beautiful temples. And in these other beautiful temples, I would notice that I didn't have the same feeling. They were pretty and I liked them, but I didn't have the feeling of that supreme joy. Um, The side note to me that has been a living consideration ever since that trip is, I'm not new to the idea that God is within, but I really reflected on, I don't know how I expected to experience it, except when I, <laughs> it took me a while to think, oh, a supreme joy coming up from within with no explanation and independent of all my annoyances. And it started to plant a seed of how it would be to recognize when I'm in a state of consciousness, if you will, a state of mind, a mood, that's maybe not ordinary, or as I sometimes like to consider it extraordinary because it was very ordinary. I mean, given that it was India and I'm a white person in a sari in India, <laughs> but it's like ordinary in that way, but uh, extraordinary. And it didn't seem exactly transcendent to me or other than or heavenly or visionary as much as it was supremely joyful. Ananda is one of the words that we would translate from Sanskrit to mean bliss and how it directly translates is no place where joy is not. Ananda, bliss, no place where joy is not. And so I would notice I just didn't feel that same uh, mood, that same effervescence or, um, and I don't know some of you who know me well, I don't really talk like that very often. Like effervescent isn't part of my ongoing... (laughs) (laughs) vocabulary. Uh, So I didn't feel it. And I really got to consider as I was in these other very beautiful places that were places of worship and holy places for other people, that they didn't evoke the same state inside me. And I got to thinking about that maybe what was happening at that temple was true. Like maybe it had worked. The thing he had said he was going to do, which was build a temple that would transmit blessings to anyone who went there Maybe it worked on me. Maybe it happened. And that was the inspiration behind this book, that it would be using the metaphor of Yogi Ram Kumar's temple to talk about a life of practice that, um, and live into a question through this writing project as to how 
I could evoke that state. At the same time I wrote this book, I, was, I had also left living in Arizona and moved to Texas. And so I was not involved with uh, people at the ashram and is closely involved with life um, in Lee's company. And my experience of being around Lee was uh, so much like I make it, I equate it to being around in, at the ocean that, um, you know, air is air, <laughs> but uh, there's ions in the air at the ocean. And there's something about proximity during the time that I spent with him that to me just felt like very similar many times to how it was to be in that temple. Slightly different flavor, but that there was something through proximity. And there's also something that I wanted to explore in outside of proximity for myself personally. And also I wanted to keep my connection to him and to the lineage and to what I had learned there and experienced in his company when I was breathing the ionized, ionized air. <laughs> I wanted to keep it alive. And that was sort of my personal intention about writing the book and, and speaking directly about Yogamsar Kumar and these teachings and how it funneled into uh, yoga practice. And I also wanted to make it a little bit more um, beyond the practice of asana. So I teach asana, postural practice, kind of Western yoga is what we call it. I mean, I've got sticky mats for it, but, um, and I'm sort of, you know, known for it, but my love is really actually something much deeper than that. My love is really how uh, it is that we are able to transform in this interesting, again, creative tension between all of the ways that grace carries us and all of the work that we have to do. And that's what I'm very interested in. So I explore that in asana, but that's only one place that, it, that I find those principles can come alive. And it's actually sort of a secondary interest for me. So that brings us to here and uh, the book. And now I've spent almost a third of my talk just telling you about my book. And, and, um, but those are the inspirations behind it. And when I read our description about the talk, we're talking about um, the highlighted kind of themes in the description for this talk were about practice and about intention. And I want to talk a bit tonight about theory of practice, and hopefully it won't be dry and, and too theoretical to be of use. And the difference between um, practice as uh, understanding kind of what's behind it and practice uh, as a set of particular recommendations or prescriptions. So uh, my perspective on any practice, whether it's a spiritual practice or a health practice, is that there is uh, the practice itself, there's the theory of the practice, and there's the philosophy behind it. So there's the thing that you actually do. Then there's this whole body of knowledge about how do you do the thing? <laughs> and, um, and then why would you do it? Why would you do it philosophically? And so we could look at that in dietary practices. You could say, you, if you really were to do a Google search about what's good for you to eat, it would be crazy town because no one agrees. <laughs> I mean, anyone who has a health regime, they have a very serious set of recommendations and protocols, and then they have how you do all those things, and then they have their theory that supports why. And it's uh, the same way on the spiritual path. When I was mentioning earlier that yoga practices reflect different theories, we start to see what we do, whether it's on asana 
what, what we do, whether it's a meditative technique or a chanting technique, or those techniques are embedded in a philosophical context. In the yoga tradition, they will call that philosophical context a darshana or a viewpoint. Um, I do teacher trainings and help people learn to teach yoga. And I'll, sometimes I do this little exercise where I put my, you know, a water bottle or some person in the middle of a room. And then we make a circle around them. And so I describe what the person looks like that I'm looking at. And if they're facing me, I'm describing their face. And then the person on the other side of the circle, I ask them to describe the same person in the center, and they describe what their hair looks like. And so each person sitting around the subject in the center is, has a different viewpoint, has a different darshana on the very same thing. So we look at different traditions and philosophical or spiritual traditions, and where they're looking at the nature of reality, they might be looking at it from a different side of the circle. And the different side of the circle sometimes argues with one another. So I'm sitting here, I'm convinced about the face. I mean, the face is very real for me of the person in the center of the circle. But the person there is like, uh-uh, hair, ponytail, cascading curls. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I don't really see it. I'm going to see hints of it. I can see how that could be happening. I don't really see it. And so in the same way that's happening in the, as we look at different philosophical schools of study, and it's also happening as each one of us, in a way, are gathered around the circle of me sharing these talk, this talk, and each one of you are going to be viewing it from your own viewpoint and funneling it through your own experience in some way, and that's how that is. So, um, but when we're thinking about, okay, all these different philosophies are sitting around the circle um, and for a thousand years or so or more are talking about what's the nature of reality, they came up with different conclusions. And then those conclusions gave rise to different practices. So when I was mentioning this Kashmir Shaivism tradition and the basic premise philosophically is that the, all that is is an um, energetic everything, the unbounded, the absolute, the all there is, the ground of being. You can't even use whether it's the ground because it's also the sky. You can't say it's above, beneath, or beyond because no preposition is adequate because there's nothing else other than that. We call that non-dual. <laughs> Only one, not two. Uh, uh, so not two, non-dual. And... The idea is that from this vast expanse of absolute possibility where anything could happen, unbounded freedom, absolute everything, there's a series of contractions or thickenings. And that's how they're described, bands of consciousness that thicken all the way down into me and you. And so that's this big, big theory. And so how the body is viewed isn't separate it's not spirit or matter. It's spirit becoming matter. It's in the same way you could say that an ocean, back to the ocean metaphor, is a um, vast expanse of a body of water. There's different currents in it and all that, but it, there's also the wave quality. So the absolute is the ocean, and each one of us rises up like a wave. And so we have a wave-like nature, each person with their wave-like nature, and we're also the same constituencies exactly as the ocean. If you take one little drop out of the ocean, it's um, made up in the same way and the same proportions as the entirety of the ocean. And so that's the kind of big governing principle of what we saw then is the problem. 
So you'd say, um, if, if the nature of reality, the most ultimate truth is that it's all one, it's this vast teeming sea of possibility, but I perceive myself as separate. I see myself, I have a rods and cones in my eyes that see the wall as solid. And if I walked into it, I would bruise myself and I might even mess up my wall. <laughs> but if I had the right measuring equipment, we are starting to see, oh no, it's particles and waves. We're seeing it's actually a vast energetic field. And this goes um, into now modern science but the yogis were talking about it through their meditative experiences for, and exploring that through their meditative experiences. So philosophy is to me, people say, um, how did you get into yoga philosophy? And I think, how did you not? Because <laughs> if you're doing practice, you should know like, where's the reference point for, for the for, uh, philosophically. Uh, so you could also think about this like a picture and a frame. You know that there's the frame as our experience and the practices we do. I mean, the picture is the things that we're doing. And then there's the frame around it. What's holding that? Like, what's the context that we're doing those things through? One of Lee's primary practices he gave, you know, to talk about the reality as it is, he was talking about this assertion that just this, and it could be done mechanically as an as a affirmation of sorts that's way too simplistic, but it was actually um, eventually something that arises as an understanding, as an assertion about the nature of reality here and now connected to all that is. And I was talking to him about some of this one time. I used to have a coffee shop and he was having coffee there and we were talking and I must have been of a philosophical mind and he must have been patient with me that day. And <laughs> I said, um, he was patient with me mostly. And I was talking about this and he goes, well, yeah, that's why at our school we meditate with the lights on. I said, oh, because we're not an up and out school. And he, right, you meditate with what's arising here and now as it is. And, and I said, like, oh, right, we don't practice a big transcendent thing. If that arises, that arises because we're not trying up and out. And he goes, right, and we leave the lights on. And so that's like a simple thing about how a practice is a philosophy brought to life. So that to me, why that's also very interesting to me in this day and age where um, having a spiritual teacher is certainly not a popular choice for good reason, because we are getting reports daily of gurus behaving badly and we are inundated with power figures outside of just the spiritual segment in our entertainment, in our politics, in our family systems, wherever you throw a, a rock, basically, and if there's power there, it's being misused. So this seems to be the nature of our times. And so to me, one of the interesting things about understanding practice arising out of a larger a set of theory and a larger philosophical structure is because when we see the practice not as something that is a prescription to be done in order to earn something, but it's done, we understand the spirit of the practice, like what it's aimed at. And when we understand what it's aimed at and why, then I think we're in a, a stream of possibility for empowered participation. Anytime we gather together as groups, we're going to be running, I believe, we run the risk of, of this delicate balance of how is it that I can hold on to my own knowing and still belong to a group. 
Um, they've done, done studies on this. I had a good friend who is a, a horse trainer. My husband and I used to have adopted greyhounds, retired greyhounds, and the people who ran the adoption for the greyhounds also, uh, the, the guy who was part of that team, he would train racehorses. And, he's, and he'd been doing, he was older at this time in his life, but he'd been training horses since he was 16. And he had this new horse that he was training for somebody. And he says, well, you know, to get a, um, a racehorse to, to break out in front of the, they're not a pack, I guess they're a pack, but in a race, for it to, for it to take the lead, it goes against its nature. Because a horse that's out in front, if you're out on the plains, the horse out in front gets eaten. Like it's so <laughs> instinctual, the need to belong and the, uh, from that kind of animal example to all of our other psychological needs. So I do think we're going to always be in a little bit of a tension about how it is that we have to be enough of a group, enough uh, in agreement with the groups that we're part of to want to be in the group with enough freedom to be able to still maintain our own choice-making capacities. And so I'm passionate about the education behind practice so that it's not um, a blind following thing, that there's some sense of understanding where this is aimed. And then we get off the discussion of sort of following the rules and into an empowered set of choices around practice. The idea there is that we have this even in a philosophy that informs, I'm going to just kind of get back to that, philosophy that informs the theory of practice, like how to do what you're going to do, and then there's the what you're going to do. You could talk about this in terms of like orthodoxy is another way to look at that, and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy, I'm, I'm using it in the sense that it translates to mean right, ortho in both cases is right, and uh, doxy comes from uh, the word that means to think, like it's Greek, dokia, to think. Um, and so it's like right thinking. And in this case, I would talk about right, not as right and wrong, not about, I believe this, um, at the level of a doctrine, but, but I am going to go with, this is the best explanation or the deepest or the most profound explanation that I know about the nature of reality. So when I say orthodoxy, I'm not talking about how it's sometimes used. Um, but I'm talking about it as uh, a theory, uh, a philosophical premise that I'm going to operate from, that's studied, that is measured, and has some reliable sources. And so uh, the yoga tradition has some really good outlines for how you have, um, how the authoritative sources have checks and balances for one another, from the scripture to the tradition. I also think that the community of people practicing starts to be a system of feedback as well as our own individual experience. And ideally, there's teachings, there's an orthodoxy, there's some kind of written body of knowledge that has stood the test of time and has, has some rigor behind it intellectually. There's a teacher as well as the teachings many times. Sometimes we have a t access to a teacher. Sometimes we only have access to the teachings. And then other times, and there's also to me the people. How is it, and the people who are practicing it, how is it taking hold? Is it showing up? Can you see evidence? Is it working? And in what way is it working or not? And then also our own uh, sense of right or wrong, our own sense of discernment. And these, I think, are threads that can keep us healthy in spiritual practice over the long haul in groups and individually. That's a bit of a side rant in the modern time of talking about spiritual authority where it's, it's dicey and for good reason. 
And it's not, and it's easier said than done to maintain one's own autonomy in a spiritual community. And I think it's a difficult thing to do. And so that's not the topic of my talk tonight. So um, when we talk about practice, then as this uh, orthopraxy or the things that we do, it comes, praxy is the root means deed or action. And that these two things, to me, uh, ideally practice is something that's congruent with your operating philosophy. And so when we look into the, um, in the Kashmir Shaivism tradition that I was talking about earlier, they talk about, they use this word to talk about practice called upaya. It tr translates to mean skillful means. It also is used as, uh, to mean like a remedy. In the Vedic astrology, if you are under the, um, like a maleficent planet or you're under some influence, the astrologer would give you an upaya. They'd say, well, this will be a remedy. Uh, it might sound magical to uh, a Western mind. It's got its own philosophical framework, but you might get a gemstone to wear or a mantra to do or some service to do to remedy a negative effect. But it could also be translated as a practice, as a thing that you do. And Abhinava Gupta, who is this very great uh, Kashmir Shaivism realizer, profound writer and profound sort of at the very helm of that system. He talked about that these upayas had always had kind of three levels, primary levels. There's Sanskrit words for all of this. That's not so important. But the first level is the gross level of practice. And then there's another level about the subtle level of practice. And then they have another more subtle. The idea being that advanced practice got more subtle. It was aiming us towards more subtle experiences within ourselves. It wasn't necessarily uh, like fancier and more fierce as it advanced. It could be much more subtle and refined as it advanced. And this is, I teach yoga practice, and this is a really important point for, for, the, for the modern day asana practitioner, because we think if we get advanced, we're going to do bigger bends. And we're going to be able to be, you know, I don't know, sometimes we are. Sometimes the, the advanced practice looks more. But really, the advanced practice has to do with not just, uh, well, you start with, like, do you even know if your arms are straight or not? That would be gross level. And I'll tell you, I've been at it a long time. And sometimes I'm like, <laughs> my teacher will say, straighten your arms. I'm like, they're totally straight, but they're not. <laughs> and as a teacher, I see this time and time again, that I, even at the gross level of the position of the body, we, are, are, we haven't necessarily have full attention there. That's just the way of the mind. But it goes increasingly more subtle into the layers of who we are. So that's another assumption behind what it is to practice is that we're multi-layered beings. Patanjali had a yoga sutra, was informed by a school of yoga philosophy called the Samkhya Yoga System, and he outlines his path of practice. So here's an example of these layers. He starts his whole treatise and he gives meditation techniques. They're simple. They're like, uh, focus on the exhale or meditate on anything that's pleasing to you, conducive to an estate of, of samadhi. Like it's like very vague instructions. They're not super fancy. And then he has this whole other realm of teaching that's less subtle, more gross. So he starts with the subtle. The idea being we start with the highest. And then the next layer, he calls it Kriya Yoga. And it's basically tapas, do something that's some kind of austerity, study yourself, swadhyaya, and surrender to the Lord. 
And those are the acts of Kriya Yoga. So you think if you could just look at a meditative object that was pleasing to you and tap into a deep state of interior calm and interior expanse, if that worked for you, his, his, the commentators say, well, then basically that's all you need to do. <laughs> and if that doesn't work for you, well, you might need some austerity or you might need some self-study and sort of get to know the deeper aspects of yourself or you might, and really you're going to need surrender to, to the Lord. But if that works for you, that's what you need. But then what he's known for, what his treatise is known for is this eight-limbed path of yoga. And it's got 10, you know, it's got yamas and niyamas. It's got lists of things like moral, ethical constraints and purity codes. And it's got asana and pranayama and meditation and all this eight-limbed path. That's what he's known for. But it's really considered if it's really more of the gross level. Like if the first one is, you know, non-harming and then tell the truth. It's like the 10 commandments of yoga. But if you don't have to do all that stuff, basically, if you could just get it done with less in the subtle realms. So the idea that practices are also aimed at different levels of our being, and they're also aimed for different times in our life when we need different things and for different people's temperament. And so in the yoga tradition, you know, historically, how would you just, how would it would be based on the kind of practice you did would be based on something called adhikara, which is your preparedness. Adi means uh, ready or, um, and kara is to make. So if you had made yourself ready and that wouldn't necessarily be, sometimes that would be like, you know, those old school stories about uh, the Zen, Zen uh, monasteries where someone had to sleep outside in the rain for two weeks and then they had to sleep in the mud room and they had to go through those, that kind of labyrinthian approach to finally get the teaching. So readiness isn't necessarily externally defined, although out of the you know, early days of the tradition, it would have been a guru's disciple kind of thing. I think a lot of life decides for us what we're ready for. And sometimes life right now, I didn't particularly feel ready for COVID-19. So there's like initiations that happen that sometimes we feel very ready for them. And sometimes initiations, I think, happen that make us uh, advance in our perspectives. Um, you know, maybe sometimes before we feel ready. That's another topic probably for another talk on another day. But the idea then is that uh, practice reflects theory, theory uh, reflect comes out of philosophy and that there's different levels to it. And, and there's not a one size fits all approach. And so when we're talking about uh, the temple of the body, the idea really is that, that the temple that Yogi Ram Surat Kumar built was built with this intention that was very high. And I'm going to build a building that will transmit the blessings of the current of grace that he was sort of, in a sense, embodied himself, that this temple would emanate, would be a place of blessing for years uh, and hundreds of years to come. And so that's, I think, one of the first principles as we're endeavoring to step into any flow or any field of practices. Why? Like, what are we up to? And it might be a very simple thing, but this is a very high intention. And I gave that example of Patanjali Yoga Sutra because it's an example of great enduring texts that start with the highest. He didn't start with get your life in order. He started with here is how it could be done in the highest vision as yoga is samadhi. It is the same even state of consciousness that um, where we see the self 
And I mean, he starts his whole text, he defines yoga. And then he says, uh, yoga is a, you know, there's a lot of different interpretations on it, but it's the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind or the cessation or of the uh, identification with the way your mind, you know, the way you could say it, yoga is um, not believing everything you think. <laughs> but, um, and he says, and now we're going to study yoga. He starts his whole treatise and he defines it. And he says, when yoga happens, when the state of yoga arises, the seer dwells in the splendor of the true self. Like we dwell inside ourselves. And there's another temple metaphor or a house or of, of a metaphor. We'll dwell, we'll abide in our being. And then he says, at other times, you'll be identified with everything you see, think, taste, touch, and smell. <laughs> and so, um, but then he outlines this path of um, practice and detachment. And so, but it starts high. And that's really, to me, the first principle that I write about in this book with Yoga Room Sarakumar's Temple is the high intention. And so we can do anything. Um, and the temple of the body, the risk of that metaphor in modern times, particularly in my world with yoga asana practitioners, is it starts to sound like a puritanical, my body's a temple and therefore I only eat, you know, organic food or drink green juice all the time, or I need to look super fit and all of that kind of body glorification. But body in this sense is really talking about who we are in the physical nature of ourselves is a contract, is a, the assumption, is a contracted form of spirit. And to have a temple of the body then that is an expression is really of not just that my body has to be perfectly healthy to be a house for the spirit or it's not really in that paradigm at all. It's talking about building something in and through our embodied experience that lasts, that can transmit some kind of grace. I was listening recently to a podcast by um, a Christian teacher named James Finley, and he was a direct uh, student of Thomas Merton, who is a reasonably modern-day mystic in the Christian tradition. And James Finley grew up in an alcoholic, abusive family. And he went to um, the monastery as soon as he could out of high school. And he studied with Thomas Merton. He was her, his uh, novice master at the time. I, don't, I wasn't raised Catholic, so some of these terms, I don't really understand them from the Catholic tradition, but I'm learning. And one of the things he said about being around Thomas Merton was that be not believing in God was impossible around Thomas Merton. He said the, that it was impossible not to believe because who he was in his relationship to how he understood himself in God was so uh, transparent. It was so obvious. He said, I couldn't not believe in his presence. And so that would be, he's made a temple of his body. Not that he's like dropped a little bit of extra weight or like ripped himself up into shape or got it all together in the body. That's not what the temple of the body is in this perspective. It's, it's inviting ourselves to build in and through our lives as they are, as we, as, our, as we are through these practices, to be someone in whose presence something deep and real becomes so obvious that it is able to transmit in the same way that that kind of effervescent joy like came to me in that temple. And it might be for someone, it might be something in the nature of God, but we all know this. We have our friends and we're like, they're just a downer to be around. 
<laughs> I mean, this is a very simplistic version of what I'm saying. But like, oh my God, just drain on the energy. And then people, you just naturally feel lighter. Or I have a friend and I just know things around her. I'm smarter around her. I mean, I'm not, I mean, I'm a reasonably insightful person, but I'm like extra insightful around her. And I think it's because she spent her life in contemplation. And so I hang out with her and I sort of know things I don't normally know. I have access to something. She's built a kind of temple. And, and I think that that possibility is, is what the book is really about. And I might not have said it like that in 2009, but in 2020, reflecting on the last 11 years since this book, that's how I would see the temple of the body. And, that, um, and it really is, some traditions talk about the body being a house for the soul. But from this condensing energetic viewpoint, uh, it would be seen as an expression of the spirit and an embodiment of the spirit. I talked another time, Lee was listening, I asked a philosophical question like, so do you think the body is an expression of the spirit or a vehicle of the spirit? He just put down his fork and he looked at me and goes, it depends on the day. <laughs> so those kinds of fine points of, of discussion philosophically, you know, have their relevance in some ways. And in other ways, we get back to what is the practice building and what is the practice revealing to us. But I also just really feel like that whole idea is that we have the intention to build something lasting, something that's communicative, something at the essential nature of who we are through practice and not just to further clean up our act. although. Sometimes we have that to do for sure. And then I talk about in the book that we need a solid foundation, you know, and that there's certain um, simple things that create sanity in our life. Uh, We would talk about these things as conditions, as conditions for spiritual life so that the foundation upon which all the deeper, more subtle practices are uh, founded. When we look at this idea of spirit becoming matter, we see the premise is that you have a problem, not of sin, you don't have a problem of like uh, being misidentified. You have a problem of contraction. You have a contraction of consciousness. And therefore, practices would be aimed at the proper means of expansion. And I say proper means of expansion because you could just expand, um, not proper like morally necessarily, but you could just be in a big expansive mode with no, like a hot air balloon expanding. And the foundational practices create you know, a certain kind of sanity. We might know those as a kind of discipline, but the idea is it's for a solid foundation from which we can expand, but that's the ultimate task. And there's also the whole idea of things that are supportive structures that we can consider. And so this book isn't really necessarily designed to say, and here's your next uh, set of prescriptions and protocols to implement. But it is in an invitation. I have writing assignments in each of the chapters, the invitation to consider these principles and see how it is that you might move into them and choose to bring them to life. Back in the Upanishads, there's a method of study outline that when you study anything um, in the yoga tradition, that you would find out like what it's saying and what does the teaching mean. And then you would also have this inquiry about like, so what? So there's, what does it say? But then, so what? What does that mean to me? And then if it meant something to you that you wanted to pursue it further, then you would want to know how it is that you would practice that. 
And so the book is really aimed at here's some concepts, and there's a lot of questions to encourage your kind of so what. And I, I stay away from like dietary recommendations. I mean, that's a minefield of, of, <laughs> of conflict out there <laughs> and not that interesting to me personally. But I do say, you know, uh, recovering from food addiction and eating disorder, if my life is out of control in that area, you better believe I'm probably also not sitting on my meditation cushion pondering the nature of reality. And I talk about this uh, idea of uh, creating uh, structures, and I call it enthusiastic discipline. And discipline has such a, um, a connotation for so many of us out there in the world. You know, it's sort of like a warrior-like discipline. Its root word is disciple, and it's talking about the, I think of it as the capacity to say yes and no appropriately so that our higher aims can manifest. Enthusiasm has the roots of entheos. And so the idea is that um, it's to enthusiasm is we want to have enthusiastic discipline so that you have the capacity to hold God inside. So someone's enthusiastic. They were in the spirit that God was residing within them. So the idea with enthusiastic discipline as structures of support is that we have a means by which we can hold the spirit within us, so to speak, hold ourselves as um, these manifested divine energetic beings. And you know, I don't really talk like that a lot on a daily basis. If you have dinner with me, I'm not talking like that. But (laughs) still, this is the idea that it's not some imposition um, of forceful will that is the spirit of practice or discipline, but it has to do with what are those measures that we can take and what are those measures that we say no to so that we take one more step toward the recognition of this holiness. And it might not be holier than thou, hopefully not, but this sense of that, of maybe self-respect, of dignity, of abiding joy, or abiding, I also say so many times that I talk very little about bliss, but I talk a lot about being okay. And so I'd also say, say maybe that the spiritual practices yield a sense of okayness where we don't have to puff ourselves up or tear ourselves down where we might be uh james finley had this had this expression of you still have fear but you're freed from the tyranny of fear so okayness like i'm scared but i'm not tyrannized by the fear and so those would be what I mean when I say, what is it that serves to point me towards that kind of okayness? Those would be, my, those would be the things that that's discipline is sourced in, the recognition that some things point me there, some things point me away from there, and I want to know what those things are. So when I'm talking about discipline, it's not like some stoic, hardcore imposition of a set of prescriptive protocols, sort of mature inquiry into what gives me Um, access to the deeper aspects of who I am. And the metaphor of that is the walls of the temple. These structures of support create like a scaffolding. And then ideally when all that's sort of happening to some degree reasonably well, (laughs) I mean, you know, not like great, nothing to be a hundred percent of the time, just like somewhat reliably, then the life of the temple can come alive. We have this more access to what's in. So we're not looking at all of this sort of cleaning up of the life because that's the end game. It's so that our attention is free for an interiority of experience. If there's tons of drama based on my outer behaviors that I haven't cleaned up yet, then 
it's going to be what's consuming my time and attention if some of that's managed to a, you know, a reasonably mature degree then we have a little bit more access to the interiority. And time for me to stop talking and take a question or two. But I would say that that is a really key piece about overcoming the perfectionistic tendencies inherent in some of these kinds of teachings is that we're wanting things enough out of the way to access the deeper levels of who we are. This is my perspective, that it's not purity and perfection. And at the end of getting it all handled, then we know the true nature is getting it enough out of the way that we can go dip into that ocean. And that practices are like a regular dip in the ocean of grace. There's the metaphor. It's like, and when we go into the ocean, here's the thing. If we come out of the oceans, we sit in meditation and we take a dip into the ocean of, of a different kind of consciousness and we come out and we do that repeatedly. But if I get out of the ocean, there's still some ocean on me. And then I go about my day with a, just a little bit of the ocean on me. I mean, if it was a real ocean swim, I would take a shower because it would be bad for my hair and the whole thing. And then the next day we sit again. And the next day, and that is one of the definitions that we get, uh, Patanjali gives in the Yoga Sutra about practice is that it's a repetitious act done over a long period of time with reverence. And so reverence could be self-respect. I'm going to eat this kind of food. It's good for me right now because of respect for my physical health. It could be I'm going to spend time with my children in this way because out of respect for the bond that we have. It could be my devotion to God, my reverence for God and the respect I have. There's a lot of ways it could be implemented and brought to life. But this repetitious act done over a long period of time with reverence is like going into the ocean regularly. Then we get a taste for the nature of the ocean. Some of it stays on us. And the idea is, uh, my experience has been, we get habituated to the nature of the ocean rather than than to to the nature of the highway and the road that we took to get to the ocean. And so the habits start to emerge and we get habituated and a preference for the texture of depth rather than for the texture of life on the surface. It's not that surface life is wrong. I like movies. I like nice restaurants, cute clothes. I like a good joke. So surface life is a wonderful thing and needn't stand at odds. But it's also when the regular visits to the depth through practice take hold, then the, the promise, what I believe, is that the depths define the surface. And that is all of the difference in a world like we live in. If the surface defines me, if the surface determines what I believe, what I think, how I feel, if the surface of life, how much money I make, the car I drive, the way my body looks, you know, you fill in the blank about the thing that grabs you, if this is useful. But the surface doesn't have the same authority as the depths. So the invitation to practice as I see it is to dive into the depths, to get to know the depths of who we are so that what's deep And so that's what's most true, defines how we see the surface. And that to me is what practice is about, not about checking off these things on a list and feeling good about ourselves just because we're doing it all right, but because the interiority and the truth that lives in the deeper, more subtle realms of who we are then informs how we see the surface and our participation on the surface is made different. 
So that's uh, kind of my passionate talk about the temple of the body and my offering for this tonight. I hope something was useful. If there's a comment, a question, you know, um, that you would like to ask me, I'm, I'm happy to listen. I may or may not have something to say about it. And I'm also happy just for your reflections or anything you might be interested in sharing. You, you, you begin the book by talking about putting the highest first. What, what does that mean for you? To me, the highest first is where the, that flow of love is, is, um, is initiated. And, and, but it's really not in the object. It's in the fact that it evokes it. And then that's the flow that I want to have carry me. So when we talked about back into the beginning, Shaktipata, what is that flow? The highest is what is the flow that I want to step into so that it carries me? That to me would be a flow of love beyond this realm of uh, conditional love that is part and parcel to the human experience. And one of the ways that I practice that, if the flow of God's love is eternal, if it is unconditional, then one of the ways I actually practice it is practicing befriending myself, even when it's hard. So if I just um, made a mistake, or if someone says, you know, that was rude, or if I fell um, down on some a promise I made, or I'm disappointing myself or somebody else in some way, if I can practice loving myself in that motion, moment, that's a very simplistic way to practice bringing unconditional love in and through my own being so that this idea of God not just being something outside myself, but being that rising up from within, to me, that's the flavor of the highest first. You know, and I found a doorway to open, you know, that got to me, the lineage of Lee and Yogam Sarkumar and Papa Ramdas, that initiates that flow really readily for me. Like I'm attuned to it. And, and the thing is, I don't think everyone is. Like I'm not a converter, you know, I'm not someone who gets on a plane and ever tells someone they should do yoga. Once I don't, I usually tell people, I try not to answer the question, what do you do for a living? Because I don't want to get in the whole thing. But I'm very interested in anyone finding anything in this life that initiates a flow that's magnificent, that, is, that has this texture of possibility of, that feels like more. Not more out of a lack, not more because I'm desperate, but more because it's fulfilling something, it's allowing me to recognize something that's already present. And that to me is a lot of what I mean by the highest. For me, I'm very comfortable with calling that God, but you know, those are like the three most complicated letters in the world <laughs> So <laughs> for many people. And I think of it really essentially like a flow of love. Christina, I mean, as you're talking about your relationship to your teacher, I'm really struck by this uncommon, to me, it seems, combination of being fully yourself, your own person, and accepting feedback or help from outside, as if there is something also that I need to understand, that I need to get, and I need some help from outside. And there's this combination of vulnerability and strength that just seems to be part of uh, any practice, any real practice, including yoga. Not just in the spiritual scene, I think, with Guru Devoti. I think we're seeing it. I'm seeing it in the yoga world, and it's not even as heightened. We're seeing it in the entertainment world of these power differentials, and I think that they're, they're um, very difficult 
to deal with. I, I also, part of my own maturation process, I think, getting a little older, um, I really want to be myself. This is another, I'm sort of quoting this, my third James Finley quote, but he, he talks about what's necessary for um, uh, maturing spiritually as uh, vulnerable sincerity, like how you should pr- approach practice is like repetitious acts. And the word he used instead of devotion was vulnerable sincerity. And um, I do think that learning is a process of, of being vulnerable, um, to have a safe place to fall down, to not know things, and to have someone's expertise shorten our own learning curve. So I think we um, tend to, my observation, I've been teaching for 20-something years, and my observation in students that I teach is that this is a gross generalization, but that we tend to fall off one side of the other. There is the one camp of students who just want me to tell them the right answer, like tell me what to do. Give me the prescription, tell me the right answer, that kind of thing. This is a gross generalization, and, and so take what you can use. The other side that we're likely to be falling off of is, um, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> and so we're really um, the pattern of comply <laughs> and sort of blind obey- obedience. And then the other side of, uh, you know, you're not the boss of me, rebel. And so when we're flipping sides of that, um, you know, that pattern where, you know, we're still in the pattern, it's still the same thing. It's like, where is it right there in the middle where needing help doesn't compromise um, that it's a place of strength, that vulnerability is a place of strength, that the recognition of the need for help is, is empowering, not limiting. And I think that that's a combination of um, temperament. I think it's a, honestly a product of early childhood development. I think this is something that a lot of us could do a lot of therapy on, which either, either side we're on. I'm a huge fan of psychotherapy by the way, I was coached as a child. So I did gymnastics and I had good teachers and a lot of good teachers in school. So I've had some, what I consider very good fortune in teachers of all kinds along the way. And I have a, I like to, I like to be a student and I'm also very rebellious by nature. So I, um, I flip flop in my own learning a lot. So to me, I, I don't know that I strike that right down the middle. Like I, I know that there's a healthy place where vulnerability doesn't mean to be, um, uh, is, can be a place of strength. So I would say that's kind of my answer for that is like, if we assume that there is some middle place where someone's help could just help us. I also have to watch for when I'm, when I'm listening more to my teacher than myself or when I'm listening to, um, when, I won't, when I won't listen. I don't think any of that, that range even there in the middle is, I think it's messy. I mean, we're people involved with other people. And so I'm, I'm really interested in the discomfort that doesn't rip the fabric of trust. And when the fabric of trust gets, gets uh, like there's a rent in the fabric of trust in the teacher-student relationship, it's like a very, very uh, big trauma because the vulnerability involved in the, in the contract is so extraordinary. One of my teachers, she says, Sanskrit teacher, she says, learning is a humbling and demoralizing experience. <laughs> That's what she says. And then she goes, so you need a safe place to fall.
And that would be the thing is like to me to be considering is not like, is the thing going perfectly where it's always functioning like the mommy or daddy I never have, but is it, is it safe to fall down in my learning environment? Mm -hmm. And, and I don't think every place is safe. I really don't. You talked about there is a place inside of you that gets closer to who yourself is. And there's that part of you, but then there's these other parts of you, some people call them eyes, that we struggle with in our day-to-day. And you were mentioning about how we can get to this texture in this depth of our life to help us with these, um, with these challenges that we have within ourselves. Mine would be anger. Maybe a little bit more clarification on how the one part relates to the other. My experience about anger, I'll offer you that as, but it may, may or may not fit. But like if I were to talk about the part of me that isn't patterned, that is um, more connected to the unbounded energetic aspect of who I am. And anger tends to be connected to A, just temperament. We have different constitutional temperaments where some people are more prone to anger. Some people are more prone to fear. And some temperaments are more prone towards sadness or depression. And they're all mixed up in there. But some some of us have a little bit more uh, a one-way street to one than the other. I've dealt with anger a lot, a lot of fire. And for me, a lot of that had its history in my family of origin. And so for me, when I started to look into the, let's say to use the language of the eye, (laughs) the eyes that are just knee-jerk pissed off, a lot of that got patterned in childhood. Things that piled up and piled up and created in the yoga tradition, they talk about that as a a samskara, as a groove or a pattern. Um, And modern psychology is saying the same thing. And so some of that's conscious, some of that's unconsciously driven. So I would also add in psychotherapy was helpful. Uh, Cathartic emotional word, helpful. Um, Where the meditation yoga practice part comes in is by the, um, when we talk about those patterns, one of the things that the different kinds of meditative states, like those regular visits to the ocean, where that is in, in let's say in a formal setting, regular visits to that less patterned aspect of self actually is passing us through a layers of consciousness where those patterns reside. And so the text will say that those samskaras are like seeds. They're seeds that live, they're located, they, they chart them in the consciousness, in the map of consciousness. And those are the states of consciousness we pass through in meditation. And so if you feel anger in meditation, for instance, and continue to maybe say the mantra or continue to be with the breath, a distance in the meditation mat can occur. It's not the whole answer, I don't think. But the idea is that those seeds, as we pass through them without reacting to them, they say that the seed of that pattern, that it can be uh, attenuated. Uh, the kleshas or the, the afflictions, they can be attenuated, meaning thinned. Because if, if it's a knee-jerk reaction all the time, then that groove gets stronger. Every time stimulus meets response or re- meets reaction, the groove gets stronger. 
That's the basic premise. And so every time it gets stronger, we're more likely to do it the next time. So these timeouts give us this chance to say, oh, I'm not, I'm not making the groove. And then, so they get thinned out. They get, um, they get, uh, they also say that they can lie dormant, that the seeds will lie dormant and you think that you're over it. I thought I was over it, <laughs> but, but over time, the different practices, the different experiences, they start to, they, they say they burn the seed. And if you know, like if you've ever tried to grow sprouts, you soak the seed in, in, in the water and it will grow, but you burn the seed, you can't make sprouts. And so the idea is that these seeds in our consciousness, when um, they are regularly, in a sense, soaked in the repeated behavior, they're like the sprout jar. But when they're, in a sense, burnt or not empowered or not activated because we're referencing ourselves somewhere larger, somewhere deeper, somewhere more transcendent, if you will, with a different state of um, relationship to it, then they get less empowered. They're less likely to be the knee-jerk reaction. And what we're really talking about is we're really talking about using a, some kind of an altered state for healing. And this goes way, way, way back. And you can look at what happens to the brain waves when we meditate. It's an altered state. The brain actually changes over time with compassion practices, with mindfulness practices. This is now science has this behind it. They were talking about it just more scripturally, but now science is showing that there is a change to the brain in meditators and different areas of the brain get more, more firing because uh, with loving compassion and mindfulness practices, that's a whole other topic. But, but my experience of that is that while I'm building that muscle, I'm also in whatever pattern. So it's like if I sit on my meditation cushion, it might be that I have 10 or 20 or however long the session is, 50 minutes that day, where I'm referencing and seeing myself clearly and I feel like, oh, and then I have to make a left-hand turn out of my driveway and there's a freaking line of traffic. And <laughs> it's like, it didn't translate into my life yet. So I, don't, I think it's a long period of time where those insights, experience, reference points need to accumulate. And, and then no matter who we are, I think we have places where we feel the healing, like maybe something gets healed. My experience has been, and then, but I'm still angry or I'm still prone to suspicion or my anxiety has me you know, over the moon about something. So um, I do think that's to be expected. That is really not an immediate thing. But that's the theory in a sense of how, how of some of how that works. And I think also that's, um, to me, the other piece that I, maybe this is something to close on. One of the most important practices within the practice, I believe, is to offer ourselves that kindness. So let's say you really, um, you know, anger is a hard one because, because of, there's so many ways that it can express and cause harm and so many ways that when given free reign, maybe we've been on the receiving end of its free reign, you know? And so we have this, everyone has uh, some story they can tell about their relationship to anger probably from um, like way each side, each side of the way it funnels out. But let's say I, I, I really felt that moment where I really probably had, I, 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 I'm going to not react, you know, I'm going to count to 10, but multiple eyes, the, the person of us that's sitting there thinking that we're going to count to 10 next time is not the one that's getting mad. 
<laughs> so the eye that resolves to count to 10 is not the eye that gets triggered. And so getting to know the one that's getting triggered is, I think, a very good, good practice. And for me, one of the most healing things is when I get that upset, when I have that knee-jerk reaction, if I can offer myself compassion as soon as possible, then I'm turning some kind of practice on it like that. And I can inquire to myself after the fact. Sometimes I can't intervene, but maybe after the fact, I can say, what was that about? But I have to be nice to myself to do it. And it feels false and phony, and I do it anyway. And then it started to feel real. And what started to feel real for me is a moment of tenderness arose towards myself from me. And, and that to me is really one of the most practical abiding tools uh, for that kind of thing that when I behave how I wish I didn't is to be nice to myself, which is really different than um, indulging myself or making excuses. But I found that the nicer and com- more compassionate I could be about to the parts of myself I didn't like, um, the more I could get accountable for them. And it, it, it is some sort of weird logic the way that it works, but that to me would be the other piece of like regular visits to the self-observation land and to maybe some, you know, larger moments of consciousness. But the other thing is, is tenderness to the part that's angry and to the part that swore you wouldn't do it, but still did. And the tenderness towards the ways we feel we've betrayed our best intentions. Like that to me is the mood that is, um, that defines anger rather than anger stomping on that tenderness. And so maybe that is helpful too. It's helpful for me to say it, to remind myself of how important it is. (laughs) So your question served me as well.